is the New South Wales Country Hour with Michael Condon on ABC Radio New South Wales. And a very good afternoon. Welcome to the show. Coming up this year's grain harvest. There's a bit of a tale of mixed fortune for grain growers. Parts of the northwest and the far west of the state missing out on crucial rain. But others worried about rain during harvest. We'll hear a bit more about that shortly. And also we hear from the inaugural Crawford Fund uh, medal in New South Wales. We hear from the man who's uh, worked to increase food security in developing countries and also put a focus on the Darling River. Yeah, that was 2018-2019 when we had the first fish kill event. Of course, we had another one this year out in the Darling Barker. It's pretty depressing. But, uh, yeah, it's been exploring all of these issues of river management and coming up with ways we can do things better, whether it's river operations or technical solutions, coming up with a big package that can help the river going forward. We'll hear from Professor Lee Baumgartner shortly on the program, uh, the inaugural Crawford Fund medal winner. It's uh, coming up to uh, six minutes past 12 on the Country Hour. But first up, let's turn our attention to the harvest because this year's grain harvest, as I said, it's a tale of uh, tale of two fortunes for grain growers, parts of the northwest and far west of the state. They missed out on those crucial rains that we were talking about in the growing season. Uh, and it's led to some crops that are well above average in other parts of the state. So uh, a real mixed bag, whereas in parts of the eastern Riverina and southern New South Wales, farmers are harvesting wheat and canola tonnages that are on par with last year's bumper crop. Peter, Pat, Peter Matthews is Technical Specialist Grain Services with New South Wales DPI and he told Josh Becker that um, so far the recent rain hasn't caused too many headaches for growers. Josh, it's been a bit of joy for growers. For those who are lucky enough to get their crops through, uh, in the northwest we we're hearing reports of you know, between one to two tonnes of the hectare crops coming off for wheat particularly, which is very pleasing. Those crops are few and far between. They're based on storm events when growers are able to get them in and a couple of storms through the season saw them get to harvest. As we move south into the central part of the state, obviously things were a lot better there um, with good reports of you know, three to four tonne yields of wheat in that central division, which is an excellent outcome for growers given the rainfall we've had. As we move into the central west to the western part, again, things fell away. A lot of growers were lucky to achieve one to one and a half tonne type yields for their wheat. And as you move further west, a lot of growers took the option to use those crops they had for stock feed um, as they were desperate and then they continued to look for stock feed. So what were the key factors in your mind that influenced the that, that sort of result this year was it patchy storm rain that you sort of alluded to there well we've got a one key factor is um good fallow moisture retention growers that looked after their paddocks through summer managed to capture the rainfall we had and then preserve it right through that set their crops up and allowed them to take advantage of the few rainstorms that we had through the season now i've had trials um north of Corinda this year and we managed to achieve one and a half tonne to the hectare type average and that's based on one storm event at rainy at sowing and then a couple of key storms through the season but other than that it relied on the subsoil moisture to get it through so again growers really need to focus going into summer I know it's a hard thing to say but they need to keep their paddocks clean in preparation for next year's crop. 
How do the results that you're seeing this harvest compare to the expectations that growers might have had at the start? A lot of growers were expecting, obviously, not another big year. Um, they were hoping that they'd at least probably land somewhere around an average year, if you like that word. Unfortunately, as we got into the sowing window, particularly for the far west, the northwest and plains, we saw that wasn't going to be the case and they missed out on the much-needed sowing rain. For those in the central east, and as you move down the state into the Riverina and the eastern Riverina and the southeast, some of those areas are basically on track to have a season nearly as good as last year. So there are, are there some areas of the state that are uh, a standout in terms of performance? At this stage, it seems to be the southeast as you run down the Olympic Highway towards Albury and the eastern Riverina. They've actually had situations where they actually had a little bit too much rain through the winter um, and that's caused a few issues with waterlogging for growers, but crops and rip- Yields have been coming back in, uh, been exceptional given the season. And again, they're going to be smiling. We've had a bit of rain around over the last couple of days and there's more forecast on the way. How will that be impacting on the, the pace of harvest? Majority of the harvest is probably starting to wind up in, in the northwest plains. As we move down into more eastern divisions, there are obviously still some people going in the north. In the central division, a lot of growers have really hooked in and got as much off as they can uh, and taken and basically now waiting to see what these fronts do. We've been fortunate that the rain hasn't been persistent. It's been storms and then it's dried up and moved on. So growing quality at this stage hasn't been significantly affected. When do you expect harvest to be finished? Uh, as I understand, it's running uh, about a month early in, parts in, the su- in southern parts of the state. Oh, look, certainly we are running early, but I still see that there are crops in the eastern division, east of the Olympic Highway, that are still trying to finish out. So we're going to, we're going to still have headers going towards Christmas. And uh, you mentioned a little bit about rain impacting the prospects uh, for summer, crop, uh, summer cropping programs. Um, what's front of mind for growers around this rain and the impact of, of how it will impact summer cropping? At the moment, Josh, a lot of growers are sitting and waiting, um, talking to a few in the north. We're going to need significant rainfall events. Now, we're talking at least 50 millimetres in that northwestern plains region for growers to be confident enough to even think about putting in a summer crop. Um, more likely, 75 millimetres in a couple of falls would trigger some more widespread sowing of summer crops. Now, that'll largely be the sorghum based on the base of feed prices currently are quite high. Or, again, cotton prices are holding and a lot of growers have country waiting, but they've got a top dry band of 20 to 25 centimetres that they need to wet up, which is why they need the 50 to 75 millimetres. So how are you feeling about the the forecast and the outlook for the the next week and what it will mean for uh, croppers across New South Wales? Well, we'll have to wait and see the forecast is uh, correct, Josh. I, I don't think they've got it right in the last couple of weeks. So it'll be interesting to see. I know there were 20 to 30 millimetres in that northwest plains region um, earlier. But um, again, they're forecasting good falls. I hope they're right because there's an opportunity for growers to try and make back some of the things I lost through the winter crop.
So overall, as you um, sum up what sort of a year and what sort of a harvest it's been for New South Wales, um, how how would you describe it? Overall, it um, depends where you're standing, Josh. You can't make generalised comments. There are still growers in desperate situations that basically have not had the opportunity to sell a crop or harvest a crop, or if they did so, they've had to utilise that feed for stock. And then you're going to have growers which will have another good year based above average yields. And with the current grain prices, they're not going to be too disappointed. Peter Matthews, Technical Specialist at Grain Services with New South Wales DPI. Now, we touched on it there, but some grain growers in the south and central areas are anxiously watching the skies after the recent forecast of more rain and some possibility of thunderstorms. The season has been reasonably kind in the Riverina, but now there is that threat of rain. I spoke to Damien Maloney, who's the General Manager at Croker Grains, based at Henty, and he says farmers are a bit nervous about the forecast and the prospect of a wet harvest. Yes, yeah, no, it's been a bit of, bit of an issue, really. The um, as you mentioned, it's the it's quite variable, and the issues that they're facing is if it stays wet for three or four days and doesn't dry out, and it's humid, that's when you can have some issues. Um, the further south you go, the grain's probably um, only just ripe, so it shouldn't really affect it too much. But um, but yeah, there's certainly a few concerns out there. So the further south, they wouldn't damage them too much, but uh, it, it, further north, I understand some people are, had, are having a pretty good year. Yes, yeah. Generally, the yields have been very um, positive. Um, the protein's been down, but the quality of the grain so far on the canola, uh, wheat and oats has been outstanding. So the last thing they want is a wet harvest. Exactly, yeah. We've been through those the last couple of years. Mm. Everyone's, you know, aware of what happened. So hopefully, we don't. Have, it dries out quickly after the rain, and we don't have too many issues. Or we don't get too much. Exactly. Yes. Mm. So I guess, and it, it's because the forecast is variable, and the thunderstorms, and and people are worried because anything could happen. Exactly. Yeah. Yes. So what are you seeing? You're seeing people like rushing to get grain in. Oh, no, like, because they can only strip when it's right, like when the moisture's at the right content. So a lot of people, we just got three or four people coming in this morning just checking the moisture before they start the header up. But the header's in the field going flat chat? Uh, not at the moment because we had um, weather yesterday. Right. But but um, they're all sitting there ready to go, right. just waiting on the moisture. So what would be ideal now for the next few days? <laughs> no rain. <laughs> Sunny. Sunny, yes, yeah, because it's still got to dry out from the last shower we had. And when was that? Yesterday, and the how, day before. And right. how much? How much? Uh, we had eight mil at Henty. Right. So, so, and we're talking about a fairly wide area of the Riverina that got a bit of rain. Yes. Yeah. It's it's um, there's a lot of storm activity, so it's hard. You know, some people missed out and other people didn't. So it's quite varied this year. And even with storm activity, then you get the humidity even if it's not raining. That's right, yeah, and it just takes takes a bit longer. So each day, it shortens their window for harvesting each day. And have we seen, like, so what, what crops is it likely to damage? Mainly the wheat or canola Mainly as well? Wheat. Mainly wheat. Mainly the wheat, yeah. And wheat price is pretty good? Wheat price has been reasonable, yes, yep. So people don't want to see that downgraded? No, absolutely not. But you're ready when... When, when the the harvest does start and it really kicks in, you're ready. You're ready to go. 
Yes, yeah, absolutely. So we've been talking with our growers. If they need us to stay open later tonight because there's rain coming tomorrow, we'll, we'll facilitate that for them. Damien Maloney is a general manager at Croker Grains based at Henty. It's uh, 17 past 12. ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Last night we saw the presentation of the inaugural Crawford Fund medal that went to Professor Lee Baumgartner, who uh, has worked in, to increase food security in developing countries and also to improve river management in Australia, particularly in the Murray-Darling Basin. In uh, some developing countries, of course, river development has led to large-scale fish declines, for example, by blocking fish migration routes. And in countries along the Mekong and the Mekong Delta, these impact they, these impacts threaten food security for millions and millions of people, so he's done some important work there uh, and uh, putting in various fish ladders and also uh, uh, discussing uh, um, ways to improve the habitat generally. Uh, and uh, he also authored a report on the Darling River fish kills uh, a few years ago, and I started out by asking him about that. Yeah, that was 2018, 2019 when we had the first fish kill event. Of course, we had another one this year out in the Darling Barker. It's pretty depressing. But, uh, yeah, it's been exploring all of these issues of river management and coming up with ways we can do things better, whether it's river operations or technical solutions, coming up with a big package that can help the river going forward. Is it just about adding more water? Water is definitely important. So... Water is the thread that connects the river, and so if you don't have water, you don't have fish. We do a lot of work on getting the water back, but then it's not quite enough. So we do work building fish ladders. Fish ladders, for instance, you need water to run a fish ladder, and that helps fish reinstate their migrations. And we took that solution from New South Wales, and we've spread it to Southeast Asia. What about in terms of infrastructure? I mean, a lot of people in the Menindee area say that the infrastructure is not up to scratch and maybe we need to improve some of that and allow greater flow of fish and greater flow of water, things like that. Uh, the biggest problem at the moment facing Menindee is a lack of suitable fish infrastructure at the Menindee main levee bank. And so that's, it's been... I started in the career back in the 90s and it was number one of the list of things to resolve back then and it's still number one on the list now. And so it's, it's successive governments and trying to come up with this solution to solve the problem at the levee bank. And also we're hearing... Um, we just heard a report from NRA today that, um, you know, there's uh, 40 gigalitres of water that uh, is basically unaccounted for that's been stolen by <laughs> irrigators... I mean, is that, is that sort of thing, when you hear that, does that sort of worry you? Oh, worries us significantly. I mean, the biggest problem we faced is this over-allocation. I mean, that was in 1995, the Murray-Darling Basin cap. That's what got us to this situation. And so the only way we're going to be able to solve some of these problems is better water allocation and making sure everyone gets their share when they need it. And so you'd be in favour of the, the plan, the buyback plan? Well, the buyback plan is really interesting because there's three ways you can bring water back to a river. You can buy back water from people who are willing. You can have efficiencies and you can create efficiencies to, to have better outcomes or you can change your operational strategies. I firmly believe you need a combination of all three to fix the problems we've got at the moment. Right, OK. So buybacks is not just a magic bullet. It, they'll help, definitely, because rivers need water. But if you, if you get the water, you then need to be able to put the water where it needs it and that water needs to be of sufficient quality. And if it's not sufficient quality, you see what happens in the, in the Darling Barker, so you get fish kills. So whilst it helps, you need a whole suite of measures to solve the problems that we've got.
We also heard about, um, you know, people talk about the um, uh, maybe over-regulation in the southern basin and not enough regulation in the northern basin. You've been there. You know the Darling Barker pretty well. What's your view on that? It, it's a really funny situation because what happens at Menindee is, is often influenced by what happens in southeast Queensland because that's where the water falls. And you can't really predict, well, if it rains in southeast Queensland, it may not be raining in the southern basin. So that's the challenge of water management is you don't quite know where the water's going to fall. And when it does fall, you have to make the best decisions to get it where it needs to go. And so the periods of time where the southern basin's flowing is often because that's when the northern basin isn't flowing and vice versa. So it's very dynamic field to work in. Mm, OK. And you're obviously hoping we don't see any new, new fish killed anytime soon but you wouldn't be holding your breath well, it was one of the concerns with the panel investigation this year is that middle of winter we don't tend to see blue green algae but we saw it um, so the conditions if they deteriorate really quickly we're very worried that there might be fish kills this year. in fact we we strongly suggested that there may be and so we know that the authorities are already taking steps to try and avoid that this year which is good news Professor Lee Baumgartner from CSU was uh, presented with the inaugural Crawford Fund medal last night. Now, the Crawford Fund, of course, had long been involved in expanding research efforts and facilitate the spread of information both here uh, here in Australia and overseas. Uh, uh, the idea is for the benefit of uh, uh, all the countries involved. Last night, I caught up with Helen Scott Orr, who's the coordinator of the Crawford Fund in New South Wales. Now, um, the reason I wanted to have chat to you today is about the Crawford Fund. And, you know, we have a lot of farmers that sort of say, why is it important for us to go overseas and do this stuff? You know, shouldn't we be focusing on what we're doing here in Australia? What are we sort of getting out of this? What's our bang for the buck from things like Crawford Fund? Yes, um, it's it's really important uh, for us to work with developing countries, both for their benefit, but for ours as well. One of the most important areas is biosecurity. So, for example, we have a citrus pathologist here from New South Wales, uh, DPI, who uh, goes to uh, Southeast Asia, works with them, teaches them how to recognise diseases and be able to deal with them. But she gets isolates of the diseases that we don't have here and then comes back and carefully works on them so that we would know how to diagnose them quickly and how to deal with them if they did come here. That's an example. And, of course, we try to send young people who are doing PhDs and so on over to study briefly there to widen their perspectives, see what might be around the corner and, in the process, assist the people there. So it's mutually beneficial. We get... Uh, there's benefits to food security which is critical in those countries, well critical everywhere and in the end there's benefits to us for in terms of national security because if people aren't hungry they're not so keen to run away from their countries and of course there's a soft diplomatic um, area as well. And biosecurity, I mean this, these are countries on our doorstep too so That's you know right. we've got to be aware That's of that. Right. Yes, we work in uh, Papua New Guinea, we work in Southeast Asia, all the Southeast Asian countries, Timor-Leste, and increasingly in the Pacific to help them deal with uh, the the changes um, to the climate and the pressures on agriculture and food security. And we also think about things like foot and mouth disease, which is just on our doorstep, so we need to have those those corridors and that intelligence in other countries. We have very strong corridors, and in fact, 
vets were on the ground, Australian vets were on the ground rapidly when the FMD occurred in um, in Indonesia and, and helping them and also learning about what was actually happening there. And the same with lumpy skin disease. And you're trying to get some... Uh younger students and encourage and more awards in to, to assist or expanding the program every there? Year, every year we offer awards, travel awards and each state committee funds a few students and they go over and they're linked with projects that are already happening through ACR or from their university uh, and that gives them that experience, it just broadens their vision and um, shows them many different ways to go forward in their careers. And I guess if they, we do have a scare here then those are the people that are well placed to actually on the ground. Exactly, yes, that's right. That's Helen Scott Orr, who's a coordinator of the Crawford Fund in New South Wales. ABC Listen, podcasts, radio, news, music and more. You're listening to The Country Hour on ABC Radio, New South Wales. If a natural disaster were to hit tomorrow, what would you do? Do you have a plan? Do you know where you'd go, what to take, who to call? For many of our local farmers, it's not as easy as getting your family in the car and leaving town. Many have hundreds of livestock that they've got to consider and care for. So to get farmers on the front foot, Hunter Local Land Services and the Department of Primary Industries are holding a workshop on disaster preparedness in Dungog tonight. Emergency Manager Heidi Chapelo is hosting the event and shared some very helpful tips with our reporter Keely Johnson. So we'll be talking about um, all hazards. So first and foremost, we're putting you and your farm and your animals and your family right at the centre of the considerations. You know, what are the things that you care for and, and are responsible for? You know, how much feed and water do you need to sustain your animals? And whether you're staying or evacuating, you know, what what is that sort of supplies that you need on hand so that you're not going to get in strife, not going to get caught out? Uh, so we're really looking to have you and your farm at the centre And thinking about what are those hazards that you might be susceptible to and working together to work out how to reduce your vulnerability to those hazards. Can you share some of those tips? You know, what can make farmers better prepared for the next big weather event? Uh, There's so many tips that I've picked up in the conversations with landholders along the way. Um, And that part of part of what we're doing is really encouraging the landholders to share their tips. Um, Somebody who I was speaking to recently on a waterway, um, he has flood paddocks and um, high country and he actually locks them up three months before rainy season so that if if there's flood, there's there's, um, he can move the cattle to higher ground and then those cattle can have that pasture there available because they haven't been grazing for the past three months. But that was a really interesting tip is, is um, actually having that, that passive feed available there on the high country. That's one uh, for kind of low country, but certainly we want to be tagging and identifying our animals, making sure, you know, if they get impacted by the fires that or the floods, you can know whose animals they are. Mm-hmm. That helps for the insurance and, you know, identification. Um, we want to be making sure that you're monitoring conditions during, like in the lead up to an event. How are you monitoring conditions? Are you tuning into ABC radio? Have you got the Hazards Near Me app? Have you got some 
other farming friends up the river or over the ridge who you can maybe use your UHF radio and get some um, situational awareness of how much rainfall they've had or, or where the fire's at, you know, that on-ground information from different parts of the catchment or landscape. Mm. Those networks are really important because it's uh, in an emergency, like, for example, a couple of weeks ago, the Girvan fire, the RFS guy told me that was moving about 80 k's an hour. and. Wow. For that information to get all of the steps to get to the media and back again to yeah. community, it's a lot of steps. Definitely. So you can be really talking uh, and linked in with other farmers in your area, but also a little bit beyond your area, maybe further up the catchment. Someone say, look, we've had 250 mils of rain. You guys better, um, better start moving stock. Mm. Landholders I talk about talk about how intense it is to care for their animals during that emergency, just being aware, monitoring, how to monitor the conditions, how to um, get to their animals, uh, how to feed and water them during that emergency and keeping themselves safe. Mm. Um, I've talked to a number of people who've put themselves in really risky situations and uh, some people who've lost animals and... um, They had some great tips and I think that it's really important that it's not just people who've learned the hard way that learn how to prepare. Yeah, but it's a matter of planning that long-term farm layout and where where you put your resources. What about after the natural disaster? So local land services has a phone number and that will, anywhere around the state, if you ring 1300 759 299, that will get you to local land services. Mm -hmm. But when an emergency response gets stood up, then we get a new hotline and that's the ASFA hotline, the Animal and Agricultural Services Functional Area Hotline. And that's 1-800-814-647. So that's where you can say, I have stock on the hill. I can't get to them. I have no feed. Mm. They're going to be dying soon. So please help. That's where you put in your request for an assistance for that emergency response for animals. Mm -hmm. And if you don't ask for it, then we don't know you're in trouble. And that's a big part of the problem uh, that we sort of face in terms of standing up a response, if we haven't had those requests for assistance, Mm. then there's nothing on paper to say there's a need. And so it's really important for landholders to put in those requests for assistance if they do have genuine need for assistance. A few uh, pretty good tips there from the Hunter Local Land Services Emergency Manager Officer Heidi Chapelo, and uh, she'll be hosting a workshop on disaster preparedness at the Dungog RSL tonight. It's a free event, dinner included, starting at 5. 5.45pm and you can register at the Hunter LLS website on the events page and uh, that report put together by Keely Johnson. You're listening to The Country Hour. It's uh, coming up to um, 28 minutes to one. You're listening to The Country Hour on ABC Radio New South Wales. Well, we're uh, waiting to get some news headlines uh, at the moment. Uh, but before we do that, maybe we'll just uh, go to the weather details and uh, Neil Fraser's at the Bureau. Good afternoon. Yeah, hello, Michael. So uh, we're talking about, we've been talking about this rain and some people are harvesting, a little bit worried about the thunderstorms in the grain growing areas and just sort of uh, also a few millimetres likely today. Um, it sounds like it's uh, it could be pretty widespread, some of this, yes, this rain. Yes, yep. that's right. Yes, it's well widespread in the sense that there's a lot of activity, but it's still hit and miss with showers and thunderstorms. And as, as they'd be aware out there, but uh, it's quite unstable. 
and the system that's causing it all is very slow moving. So today and tomorrow, most of the activity is going to stay in the western half of the state, or well, certainly today. Potentially some severe thunderstorms and could see some heavy rain, possibly even intense rain up around the Burr-Cobar region today. And it, it's pretty likely those thunderstorms will continue right through the night and into tomorrow morning, So and then spread further afield during the day tomorrow. So again, severe thunderstorms are possible uh, basically out in the uh, slopes and plains and further west. Looks like the rangers will avoid thunderstorms tomorrow. They could change slightly if the trough moves a bit quicker, but certainly if you're on the ranges, you'll get some showers, uh, particularly tomorrow. Uh, still lots of showers around today too in the east. And um, But the thunderstorms really ramp up for more eastern parts on Saturday and into Sunday. So potentially severe thunderstorms will continue right through Saturday and again still potentially um, heavy rain and even damaging winds and hail right through there. And then on Sunday, this stage, still very active across most of the eastern half of the state, but potential for the severe thunderstorm looks like it might shift to the north. Some reprieve on Monday, although still some showers and thunderstorms around, particularly over the southeast, and then it all ramps up again on Tuesday and Wednesday. So all in all, a pretty wet week, depending where you are, mm. and um, potentially some... You know, you know, quite high rainfall totals from thunderstorms that occur. So. Yeah, and not, not ideal for those people that are harvesting in the Riverina and no, parts of the Central no, West and those right. sort of things. It's and they've been boggy. through a few wet harvests, so they probably don't want yeah. to see any more rain at this time any anymore. No, that's the trouble, isn't it? Yeah, the rain's is, is good, but it, it mucks things up. So, mm, yeah, mm. <laughs> it's hard to... And also, when it being so humid, and even though it's, it might not mm. be raining that much, but just the humidity will stop things from drying out, and apparently some of those uh, crops aren't ready to harvest just yet, so that that, no. uh, that causes, you know, the, and more delays, I guess, too. They'd like it to be, you know, bright and sunny. That's right, and unfortunately we can't promise that. And as I said, yeah, the trough that's drawing in all this moisture and and instability is just very slow moving. It just makes its way east over the coming days very slowly, probably reaching the mid-north coast on Monday afternoon or evening. So just gradual progression of that instability right across. So, yeah, unfortunately, um, yeah, that's the pattern and mm. it's going to continue that way. So. Although um, some rain in those northern areas uh, be used for, the, for those putting in a summer crop. So, you know, there's oh, some right, positives yeah. there too. Bit of a mixed bag, mm. yeah. Mm. And the other good thing is yeah, fire dangers have dropped right dramatically due to all this moisture and, and, and wetness. So mm. there was some positives out of it all, but... Mm. Yeah, if you try to harvest, it's it's difficult. It makes it difficult, yeah, particularly those that are in, in, want to be into it right now. Uh, Neil, we'll leave it there. Thanks for that. All right, thanks, Michael. Neil Fraser at the Bureau. It's 25 minutes to one, and uh, it's uh, topsy-turvy. It's all over the place oh, today. Mate. Yeah. <laughs> Mate, and he's back. You think you, got, you, think you got a bad? <laughs> Try being me don't, today. Don't get me started. Saying, don't get me started. But we have some news headlines. We will be back on track for Adam's tomorrow for the here. rest of the year. Okay. I promise. All right, good. That's good. It's all good. No, it's all good. Okay. Yeah, right, yeah. Thank you. No, you made it eventually. That's amazing. Yeah. yeah. Uh, a s- we'll just change everything around for you. Yeah, just to uh, yeah. <laughs> turn the show on its head. Tony, let's play a song. Um, Let's begin with, uh, there's this, uh, been this incident at the uh, 
New York, Canada, well, the US-Canada border where a, uh, a vehicle crashed and exploded at one of the uh, border crossings there. Two people were killed. Now, there were concerns it may have been a terrorist uh, incident uh, and they, that resulted in the crossing of all the border crossings. This is uh, coming at the uh, Thanksgiving time of year, so the, the traffic's pretty heavy. Mm. However, they have ruled out terrorism, and, and so it was a. It's looking like a, an issue with the car rather. Oh than, right. Uh, rather than a, but the a thing exploded. The car exploded. Well, crashed right? and exploded. Yeah. yeah well, crashed mm. and caught fire. I think mm. with an explosion is probably the right term. Um, the uh, senior Israeli official says the hostages uh, that were going to be released as part of this deal won't be freed before Friday. Uh, it says uh, that's a day later than originally expected. Um, meanwhile, international aid groups say they're ready to move thousands of truckloads of uh, food, water and other supplies into Gaza once that ceasefire takes hold. Uh, former Liberal staffer Bruce Lamon is continuing to testify in the federal court. This is in the uh, defamation trial uh, against Network 10 and journalist Lisa Wilkinson. Today he admitted giving a false explanation to Parliament House security officers about why he was uh, there on the night in question, he told the court he didn't think they'd let him retrieve his house keys, so he lied to them about uh, uh, needing to collect uh, documents. Uh, and he said the pair in Linda Rendell's ministerial office before he told Miss Higgins he would get what he needed and headed and head off. And that testimony continues today. Uh, the police ministers again dismissed accusations. Police initially tried to conceal the tasering of 95-year-old Claire Nowland in Coomer in May. Uh, there was criticism for, uh, for failing to use the word taser in an initial media release, but documents produced to Parliament have revealed Miss Nowland's next of kin were told in the hours after the incident. And there's a big do-on at the State Library today to celebrate <laughs> uh, ABC Radio's first radio station, That's which right. was known as 2SB. Did you get the invite? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely, yes. yes. You know, yes, the free, free flow of information yeah. was forthcoming. Did you get a free coffee this morning? There was some... No, I've only just turned up. <laughs> <laughs> I've been invited to the night thing, but I've had to. Oh, yeah. But, the night, but that's, the night thing is because it actually started at 8 p.m. Oh, that, right. So the actual broadcast, and the actual broadcast 100 years ago was um, light orchestral music. I don't oh. think we'll have light orchestral music tonight, but... Um, but, um, uh, and, uh, yeah, it was, uh, be- was years and years before they had anything like interviews or... Uh, oh, uh, yeah, 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 that it was, would have been very, uh, <laughs> very simple, and, uh, simple the, times. The, yeah. the, the big sort of change in radio was the, um, opening of the Sydney Harbour Bridge when, uh, of course, we had, uh, DeGroote come and Cut slash the, the yes, ribbon, ribbon, yes. yeah, so, yeah, and that was, oh, that all happened live from an outside live, broadcast, so, hey, yeah, is- yeah. We could do more of this. <laughs> <laughs> Just need to get people with a sabre. Yeah. That's... <laughs> Perhaps not. Perhaps not, no. All right, Adam, thanks yeah, for that. No, they said it was business attire tonight. So business oh, attire? Mm, oh, yeah, so is I that said, right? No, mm. sorry, can't mm, do that. Don't have a tie. Sorry, no. don't have a suit. <laughs> tie, <laughs> He's standing there with a tie there, or the attire in, <laughs> in your T-shirt. <laughs> well, you and me both. Uh, All right, thanks for that, Adam. working in radio. That's exactly right, yes. Great great face for radio. Thanks for that, Adam. It's, he'll be back at 1 o'clock. You're listening to The Country Hour, 20 minutes to 1.
On the country, let's turn our attention to um, some news now about uh, the New South Wales government investing about half a million dollars into a program that manages two weeds of national significance with biocontrol agents. New South Wales Environmental Trust will see the CSIRO and the New South Wales Department of Primary Industry using two recently approved biocontrol agents to target two weeds. Dr Ben Gooden from the CSIRO says one is a weevil or a beetle that's targeting the aquatic weed Kabomba, and the other is a fungus which attacks African boxthorn. He says it's uh, good news for threatened native species and agricultural industries with invasive speeds, spe- invasive weeds costing close to $5 billion annually due to loss of production in crops and pastures. Yeah, absolutely. And that would be a conservative estimate when you bring together the impacts of weeds in, in important agricultural sectors as well as environmentally as well and in urban areas. But it is. Look, we're very, very excited and, and we're very be, uh, pleased to be partnering with the New South Wales government here on this investment, which specifically is for supporting us, the CSIRO, with New South Wales DPI to release into the environment with community partners two new biological control agents for two weeds of national significance. One of those weeds is an aquatic species called Kabomba. Uh, which clogs waterways and causes impacts to irrigation infrastructure and, and dam water and, and water provision. Uh, and the other is African boxthorn, which is a particular problematic weed in the grazing sector as well as in environmental contexts as well. So we're releasing an insect to attack Kabomba and a rust fungus to attack African boxthorn. Well, let's talk about Kabomba first. So that's spread from Cairns. It was got out of an aquarium up there and managed to get into the waterways, and now it's spread all the way to Melbourne. It, it has. Look, it, it is identified as one of the weeds of national significance because of that rapid spread. Uh, we're talking only about a, a several decades here to spread, um, as you've described, so widely across the eastern part of Australia. Um, but as an aquatic species, it's very difficult to manage and it can spread very quickly through stem fragments and it just grows voraciously. And uh, it, it's a double whammy of a weed. I mean, it, it has impacts to water infrastructure, which, look, let's face it, in Australia is so important to us. Uh, but with natural ecosystems as well, the impacts it has on native vegetation and fauna too. And very difficult to control chemically. So for us, the motivation here is to have this more sustained and sustainable and ecologically friendly means of helping to control this weed. So it, it clogs up the waterways and uh, wouldn't do too much uh, good for the fish either, I would imagine. So you, you're hoping that this weevil will uh, be able to, what, knock it out completely? Look, it's a good question. There's a couple of things here. We, uh, For us, the focus is on the weed um, and vegetation and the water. We're not doing research on fish necessarily but it's a fair point I mean it, it does dramatically change the dynamics of those ecosystems so sure there would there would be consequences for other organisms in having inhabiting those areas but in terms of the weevil itself it will complement um, and assist with control uh, with classical biocontrol it absolutely will not knock out the weed it won't eradicate or eliminate the weed altogether but it will help suppress its ability to grow now, the African boxthorn, now that's, uh, that's been around for a long time. What, what are you hoping to attack that with? It has, and, and look, I, I have to confess, I think it's a beautiful plant, but if you're, if you're a grazier, it is just such a problematic species. Um, 
it will uh, grow so quickly and it can spread so far with the fruit that it produces that can be dispersed by birds. And if you're a farmer and you clear it and then it comes back and it re-sprouts and, and it's just not sustainable to control it in the way that it has been so far. So we were needing a solution to reduce its rate of spread and its ability to set fruit. So the fungus that we will be releasing reduces the ability of the plant to grow and particularly its ability to set flower and fruit each year. So the fungus is available to all stakeholders in New South Wales to request uh, access to and we provide the fungus with instructions on release, including follow-up monitoring and evaluation, release the fungus, evaluate its impact on the plant and then over many, many years we should see sustained decline in the performance of those weed populations. Right, so, yeah, I can hear the call now. Release the fungus. Yes, it's absolutely right. <laughs> and, and this is what the nature of this investment is. So it's a three-year project. It is important to note that at the moment it is only focused on New South Wales. That's the nature of this New South Wales government investment. And based on the research we've done to this point, we have developed methods for community members to receive the fungus, release the fungus themselves, and monitor how it's performing. And it's safe. I mean, you've tested it. It's not going to be a new cane toad. Oh, look, it's a great question. And it's absolutely the question people need to ask because at the forefront of our work and the regulations that govern how we do our research and approval for release is all about the safety. So many, many, many years of testing has gone into determining that this fungus is safe for release it has no ability to infect and reproduce and complete its life cycle and spread on any native plant species that co-occur with African box thorn. So it is safe for release. Talking about those uh, those two methods uh, just been announced of biocontrol of weeds, two weeds of national significance, uh, Dr. Ben Gooden there from the CSIRO and that, uh, that uh, three-year project. It's coming up to 14 minutes to one here on the New South Wales Country Hour. Well, the end of the year is fast approaching. It's just a matter of weeks before Santa comes knocking. So with 2024 just around the corner, how is the year ahead shaping up for beef production forecasts and also a bit of pricing news as well? According to the latest quarterly outlook from Rabobank, it's looking like a tale of two stories between the northern and southern hemisphere. Senior analyst Angus Gidley-Baird explains more to Lara Webster. It's sort of a continuing trend and we're sort of calling it almost two separate markets in that global space. We've got contracting production in the northern hemisphere and when we say northern hemisphere effectively the US and Canada or North America and and Europe um, and then increasing production in the southern hemisphere so the South Americas and the Australian uh, leading that so sort of two different forces at play there and then we've also got uh, very strong demand or continuing strong demand in, in North America and then supply chain congestion and soft weak demand in that Asian market as well so sort of two separate markets at play here and it's very interesting to watch you know the strength of that u.s north american market and all the other markets that are sending product into asia with that soft consumer demand and increasing production experiencing very different pricing for from from a market point of view so if we look at the southern hemisphere and and for our australian producers as well what are you really expecting to play out in the coming quarter 
in in this latest beef quarterly, we're looking at not only what's happening this quarter, but also projecting through into what the next 12 months are going to look like. And we think next 12 months are going to f- be fairly similar to what we've seen this year and, and in this last quarter of the year, in the sense that we'll continue to see contraction in that North American US space. Um, we'll continue to see increased production in the Australia and Brazil space. And netting those two out, it's going to be close to line ball. Uh, we think this year there might have been maybe a 1% contraction in, in that balance. Um, next year, it's going to be close to line ball again. So that's a positive from our point of view in the sense that there's not a growth in beef production out there. When you look at it on a trade point of view, though, declining production in the US means less exports out of the US into some of those Asian markets, the Japan, South Korea, China, etc., which are key markets for us. Our growing production will potentially fill some of those gaps that are created um, as a result of that US. We are expecting Chinese imports to increase next year a little bit. Uh, we think they were up about 3% this year. We're expecting maybe 5% next year. So uh, on, on balance, it looks like it's going to be a similar sort of year in terms of that trade. Um, we still have to see how a few things play out, and in particular how that, that, China, that Asian consumer sort of responds to a slower economic environment and whether that demand has an opportunity to grow and suck some of that product through the supply chain. Um, because at the moment it's very soft. Yeah, well, how likely do you think it is demand will grow? What factors need to line up for that to happen? Yeah, and and, and really we're looking at that... Um that Chinese economy is the the major engine room uh, for that does have an impact on global trade and a lot of those other Asian economies as well. Um, some of the reports that we saw out of things like Singles Day in the last week or so, uh, you know, the Alibaba's and JD.com's um, not reporting the the overall sales figures sort of give us an indication that maybe they're not as strong as what they have been in the past. Um, most of the commentary coming back through our channels and analysts is suggesting that yeah. It's just, it's weaker. It it is there, but it's just not that that growth or that strength that um, that we have seen in the past. So, we're probably looking at a much more measured response or measured recovery rather than suddenly next year it's going to be hugely strong again. Angus Gidleybed, if we can package this all up in a nice, neat bow for the producers and and consumers listening as well, what does this all mean for the Aussie? market and industry going forward in the next 12 months? Yeah, from a beef point of view, it, it's definitely positive, um, positive upside, not not like major, you know, leaps forward and sudden returns to record prices or anything like that. But it's it's definitely positive in the sense that we've got we've got an increasing production base here. Um, we've got to find a home for it. At the moment, we're coming up against resistance with full supply chains and slow demand in, in those Asian economies. We expect that will slowly uh, clear as we progress into next year. So that's going to give us better opportunity to send that increasing volume into that market, particularly, um, or not only with uh, the general sort of demand in that market improving, but also with the US contracting in terms of some of the volumes that they're sending into that market. I think their their exports this year are down 14 or 16% at the moment. So, um, you know, if that continues, that gives us a bit more opportunity uh, into those markets. So it's a, it's a positive upside, um, but it's just not a huge leap forward. So I, I think... Once we get over some of this uncertainty that's really plaguing our market at the moment with the, the producer sentiment, um, particularly with some of the seasonal outlooks, etc., um, 
once we move through that, you know, and in increasing that demand or that lift, slight lift in demand in those Asian countries, the reduction in the US, it'll just allow the, the market to rebalance itself. And, and I think that'll lead to an increase in prices. Rabobank Senior Analyst Angus Gidley-Baird speaking there to Lara Webster. It's uh, eight to one. ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. The Country Hour on ABC Radio New South Wales. We were talking about Professor Lee Baumgartner winning the inaugural uh, Crawford Medal and uh, we're talking about water and people have texted in on that issue. Uh, Sherlock's texted in saying water New South Wales is holding back and converting river base flows into available irrigation water, which is taking water from the ecosystem Offsetting the buybacks, uh, says Sherlock. Uh, he has a few concerns about that. Also, uh, got a text here. NRA has bigger fish to fry, but they're slow to act when an irrigation company has set a precedent by un- unlawfully taking large quantities of water out of a creek system to the detriment of the environment downstream. So I'd like to follow up on uh, that story and get a bit more detail about that. And on the rainfall as well, uh, as Dougal's texted in to say they received 56 millimetres in a series of thunderstorms yesterday. A neighbour of theirs, less than a kilometre away, got 81 millimetres at Springside, south of Orange. Uh, they're approximately uh, six, Dougal says he's approximately six kilometres west of the official bomb weather station at Orange Airport, which uh, didn't record anywhere near as much as they did. So 56 millimetres at his property and 81 at the neighbours. And I think uh, yesterday we were talking about uh, 30 millimetres, I think they recorded at the airport at Orange yesterday as well. It's uh, time to go to markets. Those reports we had were, of course, at uh, midday yesterday, so uh, they might have had a bit more rain after that uh, yesterday when we uh, got the latest figures there. Let's go to uh, Wagga Sheep and Lambs first up on the markets. The lamb market at Wagga saw a turnout with 35,000 lambs and 15,000 sheep. What made this sale stand out was the prevalence of plainer quality store condition lambs. A trend that agents noted was unprecedented at this market. The scarcity of heavy lambs drove prices up around $10, sparking more competitive sales. Shorn lambs attracted a premium, fetching to a top price of $180. Heavier young lambs in short supply fetched from $148 to $178, averaging $550 a kilogram carcass weight. Trade lambs varied based on quality, with the better finished ones commanding an $8 lift, while drier, plainer types saw a $7 dip. Buyers were selective around quality, with most sales ranging from $5.30 to $0.610 cents a kilogram carcass weight. Processors did show keen interest in light lambs, which sold from $40 to $88. Store lambs destined to the paddock exhibited a wide range, selling anywhere from $40 to $106. Hoggets were in favour, selling at $58 to $110. And a few sheep sold early this morning, with prices $7 to $12 dearer. I'm Leanne Dax for MLA. Let's go to Dubbo Cattle now. 
With up to 30 millimetres of storm rain in some districts, numbers were back by 550 for a yarding of 2,700. It was a mixed yarding with limited numbers of prime heavyweight cattle yarded. There were some good lots of well-finished young cattle to suit the trade and there were fair numbers to suit the feeders. There was also good numbers of secondary cattle mixed throughout. Young cattle of the trade were 15 cents dearer and more in places, with the prime yielding selling from 220 to 284. Feeder steers and heifers were 15 to 25 cents dearer, with the feeder steers selling from 216 to 295, while the feeder heifers sold from 236 to 254. Young cattle of the restockers were up to 30 cents dearer, with the young steers selling to 364 and the young heifers 314. Ground steers were 12 to 14 cents dearer, while the ground heifers were up to 20 cents dearer. Prime ground steers sold from 220 to 247, while the ground heifers sold to 234. Cows were 17 to 30 cents dearer, with the two and three scores selling from 100 to 194. Prime heavyweight cows sold from 190 to 229 to average 208. Heavy bulls sold to 206. This is David Monk reporting from Dubbo. Let's go to get the details about Yass cattle now. Good afternoon. Numbers eased to 750, but the quality improved. Most of the cattle were in forward condition with plenty of weight. Again, feeders with the strength buying most young cattle. The export run consisted of some very heavy bullocks and around 150 heavy cows. The market was stronger with feeder steers and heifers lifting 30 to 40 cents. Heavy trade cattle gained 25. The grown steers jumped 35 and bullocks 20. Grown heifers lifted 25 to 30 cents and cows were 25 cents dearer on the heavy weights. The few weaner steers reached 310, medium heavy feeder steers 192 to 269, medium weights to restock reached 286, feeder heifers 166 to 230, the grown steers and bullocks 190 to 237, grown heifers 180 to 219 and the heavy three and four score cows 182 to 211. And this has been Graham Richard. Thanks Graham. let's go to Armadale cattle now. Good afternoon. Numbers remain steady at 355 head. Good rain slowing supply. Young cattle and cows mostly with quality and condition fair to good. Reduced processor attendance. Restocker activity was high. Strong demand for lightweight restocker steers substantially dearer. Those weighing under 280 kilos making from 270 to 401 cents a kilo. Up to 400 kilos sold from 286 to 352 with heavier weights 278 to 286 cents. Yielding heifers also much dearer not as great as the steers though. Lightweights 190 to 288. Well finished medium and heavyweights 245 to 275 cents. Grown heifers considerably dearer with three and four scores 225 to 254. Cows were 20 to 30 cents dearer with heavy three and four scores selling from 200 to 232 cents. Heavy meatworks bulls sold from 140 to 174 cents a kilo. James Armitage from LA in Armidale. You're listening to the Country Hour and that's the market information for today. You're listening to The Country Hour on ABC Radio New South Wales. And, of course, a reminder, uh, too, about uh, we're talking about that event about livestock preparation and there's an event uh, on uh, what to do in a disaster if a natural disaster hit. The Hunter Local Land Services uh, Emergency Management Officer is holding a workshop at the Dungog RSL tonight. It's a free event. It starts at 5.45, but you have to register on the events page, so you have to do that 
Uh, you go to the Hunter Local Land Services website, the events page, uh, as I said, hosting a workshop on da- disaster preparedness, of course, uh, because uh, it might be uh, um, not so easy for local farmers. They can't just uh, hop in the car and take the family away and leave town because you've got uh, many hundreds of livestock to care for. So all that uh, taken into consideration. You're listening to The Country Hour. It's heading up to news time at one o'clock.